I want to welcome you this morning. If you're here for the first time or the first of a few times, we're glad that you've decided to share your morning with us. I hope that you feel welcome this morning. Let me encourage our regular folks to notice who doesn't look like a regular folk and make the point to introduce yourself and connect to them. We want you to feel welcome and we're glad that you're here this morning. We're going to begin with prayer and then we are climbing into Hebrews chapter uh, 13. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12. I want to make sure we're in the right verse before we get started on our sermon. That'd be important. And then we'll start with prayer. Or we'll start with prayer and climb in. God, what a wonderful morning to sing true things back to you, about you, to remind ourselves and remind each other of those true things that you are a loving Father. And uh, what, a, what a wonderful reminder this morning. Lord, I pray that this sermon and how we spend these next few minutes will be something that will bring a wonderful Father uh, tremendous glory uh, as you are enjoyed through your design uh, for discipline. I pray that it will be equipping this morning, that it will be illuminating. Um, I pray that we will, uh, that the Spirit will speak through a frail and feeble and often in the way preacher and pray that, uh, that this case this morning would be out of the way preaching that you would just speak to your people. We also want to lift up another church, another pastor in our community. We want to pray for Johnson Street Church of Christ. I want to pray for Randy Daw and uh, just thankful for Randy's uh, wonderful insight into the scriptures, wonderful, um, dedicated, um, fervent work in this community. Lord, we pray for, first of all, for his worship, that you would fuel his worship, fan the flame of worship in his own life so that it affects his marriage and his family first. And then secondly, that it impacts and fuels a ministry as he serves alongside other elders at Johnson Street Church of Christ. Lord, we pray for the work of the church through Johnson Street Church of Christ, that it will be kingdom advancing. We pray that it will make much of Jesus I pray that it would equip the saints for salty, bright, aromatic worship between Sundays. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to serve alongside Randy Daw and, and this church, uh, Johnson Street Church of Christ. And pray that whatever way that we can cheer for them, that we can cheer for you and your work through them, that we'll be faithful to do so. God, we're looking forward to how we spend these next few minutes. I'm thankful in advance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. If you're here today as a first time or first of a few times, we've been in Hebrews the last couple of years, and we are, I think we're actually looking like we will finish the book of Hebrews by the summer, by May. That, I think that's, that's really going to happen. I, I trust that. Um, what we're going to be doing for the rest of the year, or the, excuse me, the rest of the spring up through May is we're going to be looking at these enduring things that take place as a result of Christ being the perfect high priest. These enduring realities. And this morning, the title of the sermon is Enduring Discipline. And we'll be looking at verses 3 through 13. But before I read those verses, I want to ask you a question to consider. And I'm going to read another passage as sort of an introduction. I want you to consider the question, would a loving God allow you, his child, to suffer? How would you answer that question? How would you represent that question to someone that doesn't know our God? 
Or how would you present and represent an answer to that question to your children? What do you believe about suffering? Would a loving God maybe even possibly ordain your undeserved suffering? I'm going to share a passage with you from Matthew chapter 7 before we look at Hebrews. And it'll be a familiar passage to you, so... It's not even something that you necessarily need to turn to. Just listen to it for a moment. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I would be shocked if there's not a person in this room that doesn't appreciate and enjoy that passage. It's a familiar passage to us. It's a passage that Luke and I joke about from time to time as we're talking about something that he might be asking for. He'll quote that passage for me, remind me what a good father does for his son. It's a familiar passage. I think we can and should expect good things from God. Shouldn't we? Absolutely. But I want to offer to you this morning, before we climb into Hebrews chapter 12, good things sometimes, maybe even often, come in painful packaging. They might even feel like a serpent or a stone. Let's look at our passage today. I'm going to read it in total, and then we're going to sort of, I want to sort of orient you to the passage, and then we're going to look at what is being defined here, what type of discipline we're talking about, and then the passage actually has an outline for us, three things that we're going to look at in regards to God's discipline. So that's the plan for the morning. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves... And chastises every one or every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. 
In the previous two verses, the first two verses of chapter 12, the Hebrews preacher has encouraged the Hebrews church to run the race with endurance, laying aside heavy weights. It's been a necessary encouragement because at least in part or in whole, this church is considering bailing on Christianity because Christianity is very hard, apparently, in their context in the Roman Empire. It was definitely not a social club. And it was definitely not a cakewalk. Following Christ in this context could and likely would cost you everything. And here in verse 3 through 13, he shifts from an encouragement to run the race, laying aside heavy things, to dealing with how to endure sinners and what sinners do against you as a child of God and as the church. Verse 4, I've used this passage a number of times, and honestly, I'm going to tell and share with you, I'll just confess to you right now, I've used it inaccurately. This passage, verse 4 especially, is so often used as a go-to passage in dealing with putting sin to death in your life. I've shared it over and over again. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It sounds like it would be a nice fit for that sermon in putting sin to death, but that's not what he's dealing with here. He has shifted in verses 1 and 2 from talking about personal sin in a subjective sense to now talking about sin in an objective sense. And the escort there is where he's speaking of Christ resisting sinners. You have not resisted sin to the point of bleeding yet, is what he's saying. Here, sin means, in verse 4, it means a hostile power standing against the church. It refers to any source of hostile opposition to the church. Now, he uses some more athletic language in here. I'm convinced that the church in Rome there must have been some real sports gurus. In fact, right across the river was where they later built the Colosseum. So they likely were inundated with sort of athletic language and athletic metaphor. And these words here, struggle, resist, familiar words to us in the Greek, had to deal with the efforts involved in the arena. And he's saying struggle. And resist. He's moving from the running metaphor now to the arena metaphor and more dealing with boxing language. And what he's saying here in verses 3 and 4 is you guys need to endure in your struggle against sinners and what sinners do against you in the church, i.e. sin. It's what they do. For you haven't resisted to the point of bleeding yet. None of you to this point has been martyred, is what he's saying. Nobody's been martyred yet, so hang in there. You haven't bled bled yet like Jesus did. Now, it's important to understand what he's talking about here because it helps you interpret the rest of the passage. Is this passage about putting sin to death, or is it about something more than that? God's discipline through undeserved suffering For your faith. Continuing with unpacking the passage. In verses 5 and 6, he quotes a proverb. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. That uses words synonymously for discipline. 
with reproof and chastisement. Chastise means flogging, to translate it directly. And what I want you to appreciate, what we should see as they're hearing this 2,000 years ago, is this concept of God loving his people through suffering, a discipline that suffers, was a thousand years old by the time they're reminded of it. The Proverbs was a thousand years old for them. It's 3,000 years old for us. And here, I'm not sure that we're even being reminded of it. We may be hearing it for the first time, that God could ordain your suffering and call it discipline, even undeserved suffering. But here the Hebrews preacher takes them to a passage that's a thousand years old so that they can be reminded. And frankly, it sounds pretty punitive, doesn't it? Reproof, chastisement, flogging. There's almost the thought, if you didn't know any better and didn't take it contextually, that these people must be getting what they deserved. They've been unfaithful and now they're paying the price for it. And we'll deal with this more in a few minutes about the nature of the discipline that's being described here. But then the outline for the morning unfolds in the next few verses, verses 7 through 11. He deals with discipline, breaking it down in three ways. First of all, in verse 7 and 8, he deals with the necessity for discipline. It must happen. Then in verses 9 and really a little piece of verse 7, he deals with an appropriate response to discipline. And then third... He deals with the benefits of discipline in verses 10 and 11. That's where we're going to spend our morning looking at those three things. The necessity for it, the appropriateness of it, or appropriate response, and the benefits of it. But in verse 12 and 13, really, I know of no passage that's more... This feels more, feels more like and sounds more like the coach's halftime locker room talk than verses 12 and 13 in chapter 12. As he tells them, so you got, you got to hang in there. You better man up and go the distance. And this passage is referenced from Isaiah chapter 35. And it's a fitting encouragement then to exile Jews in Babylon or Assyria who thought that God's deliverance would never come. That's the words that he uses in this halftime pep talk in the locker room. Now... Let's deal with the question of discipline. What are we talking about here? Is this punitive? Is this suffering deserved or not? When you hear the word discipline, most of us, I think, think punitive thoughts. We think of someone getting what they deserve for doing something wrong. The word discipline in their context meant so much more than dealing with something punitively. The word in the Greek combines concept of training, instruction, Firm guidance with those of reproof, correction, and punishment. It's not just punitive, but involves all kinds of instruction, usually and ideally administered by daddy. Dads. Man, there's a sermon in and of itself right there. We're not going to go there. We'll save that for another time. But discipline in this context, as it's being referred to here in chapter 12, Dealing with it contextually, what we see here is a combination of training, instruction, firm guidance, and reproof and correction, and even punishment, via suffering as they resist the hostile opposition to the church. 
What we're talking about here is undeserved suffering just for being a Christian. Consider the use of discipline interchangeably with reproof and chastisement that means flogging. It sounds so punitive, but it's so much more. After all, God has done this before. He did it in Egypt for 400 years as he built a people in the fiery furnace of affliction. He did it with Babylon. He did it with Assyria. And now, here in this context, he's doing it with Rome. It should not be an unsavory thought that your God, our God, a loving God, disciplines via suffering. Because it's a familiar concept in our Bibles. And if discipline is not just punitive, and we ask the question, is this suffering deserved or not? We have to ask the question, are we talking about faith suffering or sin suffering? Because there's two kinds of suffering. Sin suffering is just suffering like gravity. You sin and you pay the consequence and you pay the price. But the kind of suffering we're dealing with here in this passage is faith suffering. He's talking here more about the suffering that goes along with faith in a hard, dark place. Since we're just right there by it, flip over a couple pages over to chapter 10. Let's really connect to this suffering that they're experiencing here and the environment and the context. In chapter 10, verse 32, the Hebrews preacher says, Hebrews church, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that would be another way of saying after you came to faith in Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, implying that there was even imprisonment for following Christ. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Apparently, faith in their context cost you something. Faith in their context was painful and it involved suffering. And in that case, these newly won, newly enlightened believers are suffering undeservedly. And here he picks up the argument in chapter 12 explaining that it's a father's loving discipline. Maybe our desire to distinguish which kind of suffering he's talking about here. I wrestled with this. I'll tell you, a big part of the week as I'm preparing the sermon, trying to figure out what kind of suffering are we talking about here, what kind of discipline, what, what, did they deserve this, did they not? And I'm wondering if my desire, maybe our desire to distinguish which kind of suffering he's talking about here comes from our desire to make sense of and compartmentalize suffering in our own lives. We want to know, do I deserve this or not? Because then I can sort this thing out. Something in us believes that suffering that comes from sin makes sense, like gravity, but we don't know what to do with suffering when we don't have any sense that we deserve it. We don't know what to do with it. It sort of feels like at times that our Father gave us a serpent or a stone after all, doesn't it? We may not call it that, but it feels that way. And we can act surprised as if something strange is happening to us. 
I'm hoping that the following insights into God's discipline, the necessity for it, and what follows, that these insights into his discipline through undeserved suffering will help us appreciate what our God does with what may feel like a stone or a serpent that you come to find later was a big piece of bread indeed or a nice, well-baked fish. I thought something that would be helpful before we continue looking at his suffering would be to point out some things that came to mind in Christian suffering in Greenville in 2015, some ways that I see you suffer. We're not in Rome. Nobody's had their stuff plundered that I know of for loving Christ. None of you have been imprisoned for loving Christ, but there are some versions of suffering in, in, in Greenville in 2015. Here's some examples that I came up with. Enduring with an unbelieving or ungodly spouse. I see it in some of you suffering, this relentless, heartbreaking suffering. There's the potential to be excluded or mocked or even neglected. Because you trust Christ, whether it's in a workplace or in a school. There's a suffering that goes along with that. There's a suffering that goes with weeping with those who weep. Because you take on their suffering, as we're supposed to. There's a suffering that goes along with a parent who raises and pours into a child who it seems, from all indications, is wayward. And has no use for you or your God. There's a suffering that goes along with that because I see it in you. There's a suffering in doing without your wants because someone else may have some needs. I've seen that suffering in you. There's a suffering that honestly, if you are going to shepherd a people, whether it's in a life group or shepherding a family intentionally or be a deacon or an elder, you're going to experience something that I call sheep bite where you pour into people, where you love people with everything that you have. You give them your best, and then they will bite the ever-living snot out of you. I promise you it will happen, and it is a relentless suffering that's guaranteed if you shepherd. There's a suffering that comes with putting sin to death. That is part of our conversation here. After all, in verse 1 of that chapter 12, he says, lay aside heavy things and those sins and things that encumber you and keep you from running. There's a suffering that goes along with that. That's not easy. There's a suffering that goes along with taking the church where it isn't. It will cost you something. There's a loss involved with a potential gain in a place that doesn't know him. There's a suffering that comes along with enduring faithfully singleness after divorce. And I see that in some of you. Enduring faithfully after a heartbreaking divorce. There's a suffering that comes along with enduring the challenges of pure and undefiled religion as you minister to the fatherless through adoption and fostering, I see it across this room. A relentless suffering. There's a suffering that goes along with being salty, bright, and aromatic in a worldly school environment or worldly workplace. These are just some of the sufferings that, honestly, we look at them and, man, they are truly light and momentary afflictions compared to what these folks must have experienced in the Hebrew context, but they're suffering nonetheless, and they're things that we experience, the things that you experience. 
suffering for the sake of your faith. Now God gives us some good medicine here. Three things. He shows us in verses 7 and 8 the necessity for it. And he shows us in verse 9 the benefit of it. And then he shows us, wait, I'm missing something. The necessity for it in verses 7 and 9, the appropriate response. And then in verses 10 and 11, the benefit of it. There's good news here as we deal with this hard truth. First of all, in verse 7 and 8, let's read it again. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children. And not even sons, after all. The necessity for discipline through suffering in your life is so important that he is treating you as his very own child. What's implied here, it's what good fathers do. It's a loving thing, after all. It is a good thing from the Lord. Here in verse 6, a Lord, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, it's not something that a loving God does. It's something, it's the way a loving God loves. You see the difference? The hard sufferings that many of you are going through for various reasons, for faith reasons, it's the way a loving God loves you to let you go through that. Man, there's some beautiful truths that come into play here as you see this. It's proof here, according to this passage, that he is your father and that you are his child. If your faith has no suffering involved to it and never does, then you have to begin to wonder, am I illegitimate? Am I even his after all? Man, that will help you embrace your suffering when you begin to see. It's confirming in me that I'm his. If I experience no suffering for my faith, do I even have faith? It's a great question. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering for your faith in some way is so part of the Christian story that if you're not, you have to wonder if you're even his. Not only do we have to apologize for this, or not only do not have to apologize for it, we as the people of God seeing truths like this can embrace it and go, oh, I hadn't figured out why I'm supposed to embrace it yet. But it's something that a loving God is doing, like a loving father, for me and to me. There's a necessity for it. And there's an appropriate response. Verse 7 has the first part of an appropriate response, is that you just plain endure. It is for discipline that you have to endure. This word here, endure, is not an imperative in the Greek, but the way it plays out is that it's functionally and an imperative, like a commandment. You have to endure. The only appropriate response, or the first appropriate response to God's discipline through suffering, undeserved, is you just keep going. When the church experiences unpleasantness, pain, or adversity because of their faith, they should recognize in these sufferings, the Father's love. 
And this recognition should galvanize his people to persevere and continue the race and endure the course set out for us. It's the only appropriate response. Don't buck it, don't run from it, and don't act like something strange is happening to you. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I only have a couple satellites this morning, and this is the first of two. 1 Peter chapter 4. A beautiful passage on suffering, Christian suffering. I mean, it's, it's the go-to satellite to make sense of Hebrews chapter 12. It speaks for itself. It doesn't need a lot of unpacking. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 4, 1 Peter. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That's just gravity. Duh. I mean, you could put like in your Bible, right in the margin, duh. That's not the suffering we're talking about here. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Man, look at the verbs that go along with this response to suffering. Rejoice. Those of you, the list that I went through, man, all these crazy things that y'all are dealing with, and I know that's not exhaustive. The hard stuff that you're going through because of faith, rejoice. Don't be ashamed. Glorify God. Endure. Oh, and don't be surprised. (laughs) Something strange is happening to you. It's what a good father does. It's confirming that you're his. So endure. And the second thing that comes from this passage in verse 7 and 8 is that appropriate response, excuse me, of verse 9 would be respect. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to, i.e. respect, the Father of spirits and live? This is what good fathers do. The worst thing that a father can do for his child is make everything in life easy for them. Because he's going to make of that child a self-centered, spoiled, soft little brat. And not prepare him for the rigors of life. But thankfully, a good, godly, loving God does this for us. A wise Hebrew and a wise Christian in 2014, a wise Hebrew in the Roman Empire in the first century, and a wise Christian in 2014 should entrust themselves to a good creator. If you're still there in 1 Peter chapter 4, look down at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, while enduring. Trust your souls, parents, while you're dealing with this challenging, heartbreaking, roller coaster ministry to the fatherless. Trust a good God, entrust your souls to him 
while pressing on and continuing. Press on faithfully, enduring, rejoicing even, trusting. Because there's some cool benefits. Verses 10 and 11 give us some beautiful benefits that come from God's discipline. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's the first one. That we may share in his holiness. There's a purpose clause here that points toward the reality that his discipline brings us a share of something, this substance that we can't get on our own. The holiness that's described here is not something you can somehow muster. It's not something that you can get through human endeavor. It's something that God bestows on you, a share of his holiness that comes only via discipline, only via discipline through the suffering that we're talking about here. And the implication of this is that you can't get this substance any other way. Man, it's part of the Christian journey. All the study in the world won't give a share of this substance. I could spend every waking moment in my study pouring over the scriptures, but it's only discipline through undeserved suffering that's going to bring what he's talking about here, the share of this holiness. You could study all the Bible in the world. You could have all the quiet time in the world won't bring this. Of course, I'm not dismissing the beauty of that. All the Christian music in the world won't bring you a share of what he's talking about here. All the prayer even in the world, all the mentorship and discipleship in the world won't give you this substance, a share in his holiness. It only comes via suffering. But man, it comes in spades. This share and this substance of his holiness only comes via suffering. And the other thing that's beautiful, this beautiful benefit that comes from this is the second part of that passage. In verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Just a few chapters earlier in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Christ himself learned obedience by what he suffered. What a great tutor. Now, why Jesus himself would have to learn obedience as if he didn't know any other, if he, he doesn't know disobedience. I don't fully get that. But I'm going to trust what it says, that it's via suffering that he learned obedience. The psalmist, a thousand years earlier in Psalm 119, said this. He said, it's good for me that I was afflicted, here disciplined, that I might learn your statutes. I wonder if I'd learn them any other way. (laughs) He says in the same psalm, Psalm 119, verse 67, he says, before I was afflicted or disciplined, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Righteousness and obedience comes through this thing called discipline. James chapter 1 has a familiar passage in it, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, lest insert in their undeserved suffering for your faith. Our discipline 
per what he's calling it here in chapter 12. Count it all joy when you suffer undeservedly for your faith, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. If you're never tested and you're never stretched, you will never learn to depend on him. And you will never bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When you learn to depend on him, the peaceful yield itself is righteousness. And you learn to depend on him neck deep in suffering. Everyone has troubles. Man, you might be thinking, you know, what? how do we differentiate between the troubles that a loving father may ordain for his child or the troubles that just people deal with in life? Rain falls on the just and the unjust. Everyone has troubles and deals with suffering in life. It's a given. But for those who are his, our troubles, I'm going to give you a new word because it's not a big preacher word. It's just a new parking space for a thought. Our troubles are teleological. That means they have meaning. They have purpose. They're not senseless. They're not meaningless. They have a point and a purpose. When a real son or daughter of his is disciplined via suffering, transformation occurs. And it's a transformation that can't take place and won't take place any other way. The heartbreak for those who don't know him is their suffering is truly meaningless. But ours, on the other hand, has wonderful purpose. It gives us a share of his holiness. And it gives us this peaceful fruit of righteousness. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And listen to what he said in this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure... He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. He said it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This peaceful fruit of righteousness is wrought through some pretty painful stuff. And it's painful stuff that a loving father allows and in some cases even ordains. Three thoughts of what this has to do with us. The brief. The first is that we should embrace suffering. We should embrace it knowing that it's coming from a loving father. Embrace it really for any reason. Romans eight twenty eight says that God is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So all things would mean, in fact, all things. In suffering, in our case, is either corrective, like gravity, bringing us to a place of repentance, or it could be a suffering that is refining and sharpening our faith and bringing about a share of holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The person who accepts the discipline at the hand of God as something designed by his heavenly Father for his good will cease to feel resentful and rebellious. F.F. Bruce says he has calmed and quieted his soul, which thus provides fertile soil for the cultivation of a righteous life responsive to the will of God.
not only embracing it, they're not only acknowledging it, but embracing it means you're ready for the fruit, peaceful fruit of righteousness. Plenty of good discipline and chastening is lost on those who simply blame other people for what they're going through. Their response, instead of embracing it, instead of enjoying it, instead of learning from it, is just to blame other people for what they're going through. And here's what he tells the blaming whiner at halftime in the locker room. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Man, it's like he's saying, okay, ladies, that's what my coach told us at halftime. Okay, ladies, I don't see anybody bleeding yet. Man, there's no, nothing comes closer in our Bibles than that halftime, or in our Bibles than this, to that halftime talk by the coach. I don't see anybody bleeding yet. Ladies, let's get back out there. Get on the field. Lift your drooping hands and your weak knees and get it done. So embrace it and run to it for it brings healing. Put on your big girl pants and big boy pants. Another way of putting that. The second thing we get from this is that we should teach this to our children so they'll teach it to their children. You're a special little snowflake teaching doesn't prepare your children for the rigors of faith. I'm not knocking a loving parent teaching their child that they're special. Teach, teach your child they're special. That's, they're, they're knitted together in the womb. God knew them before, he, before they ever took breath. Teach them they're special, but don't teach them they're a special little snowflake and their lives are just going to be set out for flowery beds of ease because a good God is just going to make everything easy for them. That doesn't prepare them for the rigors of Christian life. Who knows what this generation what or what generation will have to endure severe suffering like the Hebrews church did. It may be our kids that are in this room right now. It may be the ones that are in the nursery over there. It may be our grandkids. Will we be faithful to build into them that God is a loving father when they suffer undeservedly, real suffering. I'm not talking light and momentary affliction. I'm talking real suffering. That God is a loving father that he's not snoozing and that he's actually using their suffering for his good purposes. What a great thing to teach our children so they'll teach their children. And the third thing is to thank our good father for his discipline. We can be thankful. It's not meaningless. It's teleological. It has a purpose. He uses it in our lives for transformation we can be thankful, as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful to bring some encouraging and good news to those who are hurting and confused I'm thankful to have the opportunity to bring good news to a man or a woman who is enduring the suffering 
of life with an unbelieving or ungodly spouse. God, I'm thankful to bring encouragement and salve to those who are excluded or mocked or neglected because they trust you. God, I'm thankful to bring encouragement and help to those who are weeping with those who weep. I'm thankful that you are encouraging us through this passage by bringing insight into what you're doing for those who are suffering as they minister to children that are wayward. God, I'm thankful that you bring healing and understanding to those who are suffering as they put sin to death. God, I'm thankful that you are bringing encouragement and healing through this passage and this message to those who are enduring singleness after painful divorce. And God, I'm thankful that you're bringing help and insight and understanding to those parents in this room that daily deal with the struggle and the suffering involved with caring for the fatherless. It is good and much-needed medicine. God, I pray, I pray, beg for this, that this would become part of our identity as a people, so much so that our children would understand it and their children would understand it and that we would together be ready for whatever you have in store for faith in Greenville in the coming decades. We're thankful our suffering has meaning. We're thankful that you're the kind of God that takes difficult and heartbreaking and painful things and uses them for good. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The supper this morning is, interestingly enough, if I can find my page here, it is a combination of meal and sheep bite. An example of one of the things that we talked about this morning, one of the things I mentioned this morning in Luke chapter 22. If you'd like to turn there, you can or you can just listen. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. One thing the supper is every week, it is a reminder, it is a venture to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. It's a weekly reminder to do that. Consider and remember the opposition that he faced from sinful men. Consider and remember his suffering. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you that I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. 
right there at the table with him. Suffering goes hand in hand with faith. Don't be surprised. Let's today consider and enjoy him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we'll not grow weary and lose heart. Let's distribute the elements. Man, the cross was the ultimate stone and serpent. You know, what the world would call stones, man, injustice, suffering, difficulty. But what did God do with that? Man, he made the ultimate loaf and fish from it. That's what our God does. That's what we're reminded of every week. That's what we're enjoying every week is a God that makes loaves and fishes of stones and serpents. Let's enjoy as we take and eat. In faith, let's take and drink. What was traditional for me growing up was sort of a concept of this dualism between dark and light, Satan, God sort of deal. But really, moving through John for us, for, for me, was eye-opening, illuminating, understanding what all God can do and does do, what he's sovereign over. Sovereignty, by definition, means that he's in control. He either ordains or allows everything. Satan does not scratch his hiney except by permission from the living God. So don't, if you're going through some sort of suffering and you're a child of his, don't give Satan credit for that. <laughs> Trust the loving father that he's doing something with that, that he's ordained that for transformation for you. It's proof you're his. Man, what a different approach. What a testimony that will be to your neighbors and your friends and your lost workmates, for example, as you live that story out loud. Oh, no, this is from God. He's a good father to give me this. What? What is wrong with you? Oh, man. I have a good and loving father that is transforming me to depend on him. He's bringing about this share of holiness that I can't get any other way. And he's bringing in me the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Can't get it any other way. Man, that's different. That's salty, bright, and aromatic. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us with a benediction from the end of Hebrews now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Y'all have a great week.